0: attempt to adjust the picture we are controlling transmission we will control the horizontal we will control the vertical we can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity for the next hour sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear you are about to participate in a great adventure you are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to The Outer Limits.
1: A person who is too nice an observer of the business of the crowd, like one who is too curious in observing the labor of bees, will often be stung for his curiosity. That's a quote from English poet Alexander Pope. Tonight we're introduced to Professor Ben Fields, an entomologist who specializes in the study of bees. Like many of our protagonists before, he is very much dedicated to his work and isn't distracted by anything or anyone, no matter how suspicious it may appear to everyone else. Another thing Ben doesn't know is that he's not the only one conducting an experiment and that the quest for knowledge and dominance may not be exclusive to human beings. Making his return to the Outer Limits tonight is writer Mayer Dolinsky, whose last episode was the classic Architects of Fear. You'll notice the opening sequence has a glossy look to it, so we know that we have another beautiful Conrad Hall episode on our hands. Another thing you'll notice at the start of this episode is the garbled sound of the anti Misfits tweaked and repurposed for The Sound of Bees. I knew two things going into tonight's episode. It involved bees, and everyone is in love with Joanna Frank. And after watching the episode, I could definitely see why that is. But what I want to know is why no one's talking about Marsha Hunt. Much like Barry Morse was in Controlled Experiment, Marsha Hunt is the glue that holds this episode together for me. Her performance is excellent and adds so much weight to a simple story. I'll point out my favorite moments as we come across them. Now as always, I will be spoiling tonight's episode, so if you haven't seen it, you can find both seasons streaming on Hulu and Amazon Prime. You can also find both seasons in gorgeous Blu-ray high definition from the good folks at Kino Lorber. Now let's sit quietly while Vic Perrin's control voice sets the stage for tonight's episode.
0: Human life strives ceaselessly to perfect itself, to gain ascendancy. But what of the lower forms of life? Is it not possible that they too are conducting experiments and are at this moment on the threshold of deadly success?
1: Written by Mayor Delinsky, Directed by John Brahm with assistance from Robert Justman. Director of Photography, Conrad Hall. This episode aired for the first time on Monday, January 27th, 1964. We open on a shot of a garden when we hear a loud buzzing sound. A bee flies into frame and begins to flail on the grass. The bee starts to transform, and in the flurry of its wing and leg movements, a figure begins to emerge. The flailing insect transforms into a twirling woman who then grows to human size and faints on the grass. In We Will Control All That You Hear, The Outer Limits and The Aural Imagination, Rebo Wisner states, In science fiction and fantasy, transformations, both physical and emotional, are a central thematic element. Some transformations in The Outer Limits are indicated first by music and then visually. Many of the cues in Zzz are reused from Don't Open Until Doomsday. For instance, the cue No Daddy, No from Don't Open Till Doomsday is a flying circular sound which tells us that Regina is a bee before we even see her true identity. The string oscillations in this cue sounds also like a group of buzzing bees. We then get our introduction to Professor Ben Fields as he rushes out to investigate the strange sound. He looks through a few bushes before discovering the woman laying on the ground.
2: My name is Regina. I've come to be your assistant. I read your ad in the newspaper.
3: My wife went into town no more than an hour ago to place that ad in tomorrow's newspaper.
2: I was there. I overheard. I like to steal small advantages. Must I wait until tomorrow?
3: you have any experience with uh, my line of work?
2: And with someone as exacting and perfect as you are. I understand I'm to live in.
3: Yes, that was one of the requirements, but I had a male assistant in mind. Uh, he'd have to uh, destroy diseased insects and clean up hives.
2: I read your legends of the medieval bee. Was there truly a monk Sebastian who grew Nigerian bees eight feet long?
3: <laughs> 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 well, uh, you'd have to go over to the health center want some blood to make sure you're not allergic to bee stings.
2: I'm
3: not. Oh, well, uh, I'd have to know. People have died from a sting of one bee.
1: Professor Ben Fields is played by actor Philip Abbott, who's making his second appearance in The Outer Limits, the first being his role as Lincoln Russell, close friend of Ian and Eva Palmer, in the episode The Borderland. In addition to his work here, he made appearances in Stony Burke, Naked City, One Step Beyond, Studio One in Hollywood, and Alfred Hitchcock Presents, just to name a few. He also made two stops in The Twilight Zone. One as General Stanley Eaton in the Season 2 episode Long Distance Call, and another as Chris Bales in the Season 4 episode The Parallel. So we're a minute and a half past the opening credits and we've hit the ground running. After our introduction to Regina, I'm sure we're all frantically waving red flags and shouting at our TV screens, but Professor Fields is charmed into considering Regina for the position. I'll paraphrase a line from Dr. Strangelove and say, Professor Fields is a man of science, but he is also a man, if you follow. It's at this point where we meet Francesca Fields, who's just walked out of the house.
3: Ah, Francesca, <laughs> come see if I'm right.
4: You'll think you are, whatever my opinion.
3: Uh-huh. About what, then? Uh, Regina, she overheard you place your ad and stole the advantage, huh? I think she might do.
2: <laughs> my luggage was lost in transit. I have no bags to unpack. There's no need to see my room until it's time to go to bed. I can begin at once by putting a laboratory in order. A disorderly man is usually guilty of something far more chaotic than disorder.
3: Think you've hired her, Ben? Well, only because the lady didn't stop me.
1: Francesca Fields is played by Marsha Hunt. Now, to quote Brother Tom over on the mothership, she was, in the truest sense, a hardworking actress of the day, having appeared in over 50 films in the 1930s and 40s alone. However, in the 1950s, her career slowed down dramatically. As a result of her being blacklisted in the McCarthy era publication Red Channels that exposed alleged communists and subversives. As a result of this, she would go on to appear more on stage and on television rather than movies for the rest of her career, with only a few small film roles later down the line. She even made a stop in The Twilight Zone, where she played the role of Mrs. Henderson in the season 5 episode, Spur of the Moment. Fun fact. In 1983, she was named Honorary Mayor of Sherman Oaks, California. She still lives today, at the age of 102. Ben chuckles as Regina walks into the house. Francesca smiles, but appears skeptical.
4: You know I'm not an alarmist, Ben, and I'm not. But at least I don't think I object to having an enchanting child work beside you sensible and reassuring to know something of a person who works with you and lives in your
1: house. Regina overhears the conversation and quickly runs to a nearby table as Ben and Francesca enter the lab. Regina grabs a bag from the table, but when Francesca asks for the bag, Regina places it back on the table, walks back around it, and just looks at Francesca, who acknowledges the uncomfortable look, with a look of her own. While this tense exchange occurs, Ben is just standing in the background, oblivious to the whole thing. When it is off to later that day, Regina straightens an award plaque on the wall while Ben looks into a microscope. Regina walks over and stares in adoration of the professor. Ben looks up and notices Regina.
3: I feel as if I should put on a clean coat and uh, stand by for fingernail inspection.
2: You have an orderly, organized mind that compensates for your tie. And your fingernails.
3: Um, Regina, come here. Um, I'm gonna have to check your references. I have none. Oh? What is it?
2: The man I worked for last. I'd rather not tell you his name i tell you anything at all about him, you'd recognize him instantly. He was innocent. His wife had been wanting a divorce. She had met up a younger man, and she threatened to ruin my reputation and her husband's. She had already ruined mine by the time he submitted and saved his. My parents suggested that I leave the city, only until the gossipers found you. prey, of course. They never even answered my letters. So I stopped writing. But if you want fair dress,
3: I No, think. no. <laughs> Look at this, Regina. Look. What you're looking at are the fertilized eggs of a Nigerian queen bee.
2: There must be a million.
3: No, oh, they're more than that. They're all the result of a single mating.
2: Would you like to be the father of that many children?
3: <laughs> no, I'll settle for one. <laughs> a thousand. And before I'm 25, of course. <laughs>
1: Regina is played by actress Joanna Frank, whose list of credits includes The Fugitive, The Savage Seven, Say Anything, and 19 episodes of LA Law. Her IMDB bio is very short, listing only two film appearances and stating that she is married with one child. I like her performance in this episode. Her subtle changes in body language when she's alone with Ben, and most of all her interactions with Francesca cranked the tension up a few notches. I'm not sure if this was deliberate or not, but I like how most of the time Regina's hair is covering part of her face, kind of symbolic given she's an insect hiding in human skin. We're in the front room where Mrs. Fields is on the phone with the newspaper editor. He tells her that no one was around when she phoned in the ad order, and that even if anyone were nearby, they wouldn't be able to hear what was being said on the other line of the phone. At this point I just want to say I absolutely love Marsha Hunt's performance. You can see the result of over 50 movie appearances prior to her appearance here. Everything about her performance is great and draws me more into the story. Take this last scene for example. She's just sitting and talking on the phone. But if you watch her facial expressions, you can see the wheels of confusion and then concern beginning to turn inside. It's a simple scene but an effective one thanks to her performance. We're back with Ben and Regina, who are pushing a large hive container across the room. Ben tells us that bees are within the human range of intelligence, and that the ones he's accelerating are developing grammar. So they stop in front of a large computer.
3: This is a language analyzer.
2: I know.
3: Well, you've never seen one quite like that before. It's the only one in existence. I built it myself.
2: Could you explain it to me, please?
3: All right. It um, picks up and uh, transmits the sound of bees from five cycles per second to 60,000. That's uh, three times the range of the human ear and vocal cords.
1: The phone buzzes, and Regina goes to answer it. It's Mrs. Fields asking for Ben, but Regina says he's occupied, and hangs up on Mrs. Fields, who is visibly offended. Regina walks back over to Ben, who is holding an artificial bee. He switches on the automatic translator, places the receiver onto the honeycomb. He then takes the artificial bee and places it among the other bees.
3: The oscilloscope shows the bee sounds outside our hearing range. Converts these sounds into light waves and transmits them into the computer, where they're translated and made audible to our ears. Watch.
5: Danger! Danger! Stop combs forward. Worker bees to battle lines. Jones, move the queen eggs below. What is it? What is it? Invader. Invader.
3: Friend. Lost way. Wing
4: broke.
5: Does he offer pollen? Does he offer pollen? Pollen sack empty. Offers nothing. Appears like one of us, but is not one of us is not one of us. The body is not like our body. The odor is not like our odor. Destroy, destroy.
1: Ben switches off the machine. He says he studied their behavior and watched them do the things that humans do, such as search for food, and rear children, and through his observation, he can translate 70% of what they say. The phone buzzes rapidly, and Ben answers it this time. It's Francesca. She wants to speak with him as soon as he's available. Ben says okay, hangs up the phone. He tells Regina he will ask his wife to take her shopping for a uniform later. As Ben leaves the lab, Regina turns on the automatic translator and picks up the microphone. She says to the bees, I am your queen. I have passed the threshold. The human drone has already begun to aspire to me. And when he dies, his memory will live on in our million children. So Regina's plan is to seduce Ben so she can have a million children. I'm assuming these will be human-insect hybrids that won't be the size of normal bees also assuming the plan is to reproduce and overtake the planet as the dominant species, if we recall what the control voice said at the opening. Interesting that she feels like Professor Fields is falling for her. I thought he shut that down after she referred to him as Ben. Then again I could be as blind as Ben is to the whole situation. It's later. Mrs. Fields is showing Regina to her room. This is my favorite scene of the episode. The back and forth between Marsha Hunt and Joanna Frank is great. You can feel the tension between the two slowly building. Both women are excellent, but once again it's Marsha Hunt's performance that brings this scene to another level. She goes from unsure, to suspicious, to downright offended by the end, and it's all through her facial expressions.
2: Was this room originally intended as the nursery? It must be devastating to know your husband wants children. Then disgusting that with you? we were discussing our mutual tragedies. I told him mine and he alluded to his.
4: Regina, how did you find out about the ad?
2: I was there when you placed it. I heard you.
4: Except that I phoned it in.
2: The girl who received it repeated it to
4: me. Mr. Lund received it.
2: I did not wish to incriminate him, Mrs. Fields. Must I? He was only trying to be helpful.
4: I see. Regina, where are you from? Scotland. And I'm very tired. Would you rather have dinner up here alone? Why? Well, I was thinking if you're tired you might... Want to get into bed and...
2: Am I not to live here on equal terms with you?
4: Dinner will be ready in half an hour.
2: Mrs. Fields, my mother was a vain, envious and selfish woman. Her beauty was regal, and she'd always assumed it was unsurpassable. Such women should have sons or homely daughters. She treated me as if I were an ugly duckling, because I wasn't. And as a result, I expect all elderly women to exclude me from the simple pleasures of family life. If I've misjudged
4: you, I'm, I'm- not as elderly as all that. Would you like to help me? How? Oh, set the table, light the candles. No, thank you.
1: Clearly Regina isn't winning over Mrs. Fields. After such a rude encounter, I expected Mrs. Fields to throw her out. But Mrs. Fields contains her anger and leaves the room. We then get a cool close-up shot of Regina's eye that then fades into a bee's eye. We then fade to the dining room where Ben, Francesca, and Regina are all having dinner. We then get this beautiful wide shot. Every light and candle flame has this beautiful glow that just looks so amazing. Once again, Conrad Hall has given us a wonderful portrait-like shot. The camera then slowly zooms in as the scene begins.
4: This sweet young thing type said that her husband is one of the new fair-haired physicists at the university. And did my husband do anything?
3: (laughs) Francesca still attends the faculty wives' teas in order to maintain her sole contact with unreality. (laughs) Did you tell her that I'm on a sabbatical that her taxes are helping to pay for?
4: I told her you were an entomologist and, uh, working on a top-secret project. <laughs> that titillated her. She hoped you were developing an insecticide that housewives could believe in. Her words. I didn't know housewives were afraid of insects. Well, it isn't necessarily fear. Isn't it? Well, I doubt if many women would even think of using insecticides, if the insects would stave in their own world outside. Well, if they insist on coming in. Are you afraid of insects, Mrs. Fields? Well, I think we all are a little. We talk more about our fear of the larger forms of animals. It it doesn't seem so cowardly to admit fear of crazed panthers or giant vultures. But I think we're all a little uneasy about the... Tiny things that crawl and fly. You can't see what they're thinking. You can't look into their eyes.
3: But you can hear what they're thinking. If you happen to be married to a certain
4: entomologist. (laughs) Well, I wasn't thinking of bees. Of course they sting. But I am inoculated at regular intervals. Against their sting. Not their thoughts. Are their thoughts dangerous?
3: Only to the drones.
2: <laughs> they don't think of it that way. They fight for the privilege to die. They compete for it. The marriage of the queen bee and the drone is one of the most beautiful rituals ever conceived or observed.
3: Well, do you mind getting back to work? All the bees are still among us.
1: Ben and Regina return to the lab, leaving Mrs. Fields alone to clean up everything. You can feel the tension between Mrs. Fields and Regina in that scene. It makes you so uncomfortable. Then Ben chimes in with his two cents, clueless as ever. I almost laughed because the tension was building and he didn't seem to pick up on it till the end. What a great scene. Mrs. Fields does make a good point. You can't look into an insect's eyes or tell what they're thinking so folks must have at least just a little fear of insects. I'm not embarrassed to admit I have a fear of insects, wasps and bees in particular, which made covering this episode funny because I would get goosebumps every time the sound of buzzing would come through my headphones. It's later in the lab. Ben looks at his watch and decides it's time for bed. Regina goes to her room while Ben is closing the back door. Francesca walks over to speak with her husband. She tells Ben that Regina disturbs her. She's the same age as her child would have been had it survived, and that he smiles at her as if she were his daughter. She admits it made her jealous and wonders if she would have ended up vain, envious, and selfish like Regina's mother. But Ben reassures her that she is a great wife. Just then, Regina interrupts them and asks what time she should report for work in the morning. Visibly annoyed, Ben tells her to finish cleaning up as he and Francesca head inside the house. Later that night, while Ben is sleeping, Francesca is standing at the balcony looking out at the garden. We get another beautiful shot courtesy of Conrad Hall. The shadows of trees gently swaying in the moonlight are cast along the walls of the house. Francesca hears rustling and looks over to investigate she discovers Regina walking through the garden, hugging bushes, smelling flowers, before sitting at the fountain. She picks up a lily pad with a flower on it and begins to drink from it. As she drinks the water, we hear a loud buzzing as Regina's head morphs into a bee's head. Frightened by what she's just witnessed, Francesca runs inside and calls for Ben. It's the next morning and Regina is sitting in the lap when Ben walks in.
3: Has she finally
2: gone to sleep?
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Did you make this?
2: I wanted to do something. I felt so helpless, so responsible. Responsible? I heard the thing she screamed. And it was I in the garden.
3: Yeah. What were you doing out there, Regina?
2: The moonlight drew me. I smelled the things that bloom in the night. Come to think of it, I did have my nosy nose poked in a flower.
3: But you didn't transform yourself into a mammoth glowing bee?
2: (laughs) No. Yes. I'll send him right up. Sounded so well and normal, Ben. She's going to be all right. Go to her bed. What is it? What? Oh, nothing. It's gone now.
1: Ben leaves, and Regina switches on the automatic translator before doubling over in pain. Ben walks into his bedroom and comforts Francesca, who's feeling tired from such an eventful night. Meanwhile, in the lab, Regina connects the translator to the beehive.
5: Instincts warned. All not well. Hey! Did we not make you perfect enough? Are we at fault? No. I do not know what is wrong. Will you survive?
4: I must.
5: I will. Our struggle to effect your transformation must not go unrewarded. You must produce. You must. Once we have begun to breed, once we have the strength and lifespan of the humans, millions and millions of us born in the same breath, swarming over their chaotic world, we will conquer. We will rule. I will wait no longer. I have been patient.
2: Only because I've learned it. Humans. But humans believe they must experience love. And instinct. Tell me. Hate has begun to.
1: Ben rushes in and discovers Regina on the floor. It's later that a doctor is examining Regina. He draws blood and the beehive nearby buzzes louder. It's even later and Regina wakes up from a nightmare. She asks Ben not to let her die without knowing love. Ben assures her that she's not going to die and that the doctor thinks it's just a case of food poisoning. It's at this point that Regina sits up and interrupts Ben.
3: Gina, I'm very, very much in love with my wife.
2: I see, only that you are married to her.
3: Well, I'm married to her because I love her.
2: If you married me, then would you love me?
3: No. If I loved you, then I would marry you.
2: Then I won't die, Ben. I will live for you. Gina. Does it make you angry to be loved, Ben? If it's the beautiful, precious thing you think it is, it should make you smile.
1: Regina lays back and returns to sleep. Francesca walks in to tell Ben that he has to let her go. Ben asks her to be quiet, but Francesca says that if she isn't really sleeping, then she's deceiving them, and there's no reason to spare the feelings of deceitful people. There's a brief bit of tension between the two, as they each point out that they don't sound like themselves. Ben says it'll wait till morning, but Francesca insists on being the one to sit with her all night. Ben is cleaning the lab. He picks up a broken coffee mug and a reel of tape from the floor. He fixes the tape reel and places it back into the recorder. He throws the mug in the trash as the tape begins to play back to bees' conversation with Regina. Just then, the door opens and the doctor walks in. He tells Ben that Regina is a medical anomaly. She has blood fluid unlike anything he's seen before, and that she's the closest thing to a complete mutant that he's ever seen. Ben is shocked by this. He walks over to look at the tape recorder, and then shakes his head and tells the doctor he's only examined her superficially, and that he couldn't possibly have enough data to make such a fantastical claim. But the doctor cuts him off and says, I may not know the difference between a bee and a buzzard, but I do know a thing or two about human beings. Later that morning, Regina is leaving the residence. I like how the whole time she's walking, her face is covered in shadow until Ben calls her name. She lifts her head and moves her hair, revealing a satisfied smirk on her face. Regina?
2: I do not like goodbyes, Ben. I'm sorry you found me. Are
3: you well enough to leave?
2: Your wife is ill, Ben. I seem to have accelerated her disintegration.
3: Oh, that's not true.
2: Well, something has.
3: She's not disintegrating. That's what's not true.
2: Oh. I no longer love you, Ben. I cannot love a man who deludes himself. And you do, Ben. Because if you didn't, you'd know that you loved me and admit it. To yourself if not to me. Goodbye Ben.
1: She storms off and Ben closes the front gate. He goes back into his bedroom where Francesca is getting dressed. He sits on the bed and is visibly upset.
4: No Ben, I am not being a foolish woman.
3: You asked her to leave and she left. I'm glad. Francesca, is this possible? Have you so little faith in me? All my faith is in you, Ben. You think because I can be touched by a small and touching thing because you moved me to smile at her, do you think you because... I
4: think that you have done and said and felt nothing wrong.
3: Then why send away a homeless, sick child? You think she was anything more than that?
4: I don't know what she was. I do know she was not what she seemed. I didn't trust her. I was I was unable to like her. Why? Well, she's gone, Ben. It should no longer matter. It does matter. I was unable to like her. I did not want her in our home. She was not a threat to me, Ben. She was a threat to us.
1: Ben leaves the room, leaving Francesca alone and upset. We see Regina who was outside in the bushes the whole time and heard every word of their argument. Ben leaves the house and walks out the front gate. Just then, Regina emerges from the bushes and places a chain around the gates and padlocks them. She sneaks into the lab and switches on the automatic translator. She tells the bees that it wasn't her intention to leave that she was using devious tactics that humans use to draw in Professor Fields. The bees respond by begging for forgiveness for not knowing her tactics were planned. Regina then turns to discover that Mrs. Fields is standing at the door the entire time. The two make eye contact and Regina's eye turns into a bee's eye. Frightened by what she's just witnessed, Mrs. Fields runs out the door into the garden. Regina opens the bee eye, releasing all the bees, who then chase after Mrs. Fields. We get a frantic shot of Mrs. Fields running and hiding in bushes along with shots of swarming bees. The camera is frenetic as Francesca runs through the garden. She gets to the gate, only to discover that it's been chained and locked. She struggles with the gate, as the bees descend upon her. Regina looks on, wearing a satisfied expression, and slowly walks away as we fade to our next scene. We see a steeple, then the camera pans down, revealing a freshly dug grave. In it lies a single casket adorned with flowers. We then fade to a dark room where a visibly upset Ben is sitting alone, still wearing his suit. The phone rings, and he answers it. Yes?
3: Ben? I've been calling all afternoon. Well, I've been here. Down in my lab. Straightening things up. Listening to some tapes. I uh, I didn't hear the phone ring. Do you need anything? No, I I don't need anything. Ben. Huh? Have you taken those pills? Pills? I gave you some pills as we were leaving the cemetery. Oh, yes. What are they for, uh, Howard? Inoculations you gave Francesca? Ben, I've told you. The stings did not kill her. Oh, yeah, that's right. I keep forgetting that. (laughs) What did kill her, Howard? Get some sleep, Ben. What did kill her, Howard? scientist and i can identify a lot of strange things
1: the fact that he describes himself using the words francesco once used makes this scene all the more heartbreaking the fact that he says i can identify a lot of strange things adds even more to it because he now realizes just how blind he was to the whole situation One small thing I like is how he initially misses the bass when he hangs up the phone. TV is always clean and perfect, so I like seeing little mistakes here and there, intentional or otherwise. It really adds to the realism. Ben composes himself and slowly walks to the window. On his way, he discovers Regina standing in the doorway, wearing Francesca's wedding veil. Enraged, Ben yells, Take it off! And then pulls the veil off Regina's head. Regina insists she only wanted to make him laugh, and that she found it in the chest in her room. Ben sits, clenching the veil in his hands. Regina asks if this is grief. Ben replies, yes, that grief is shared, the way he and Francesca shared the grief of their lost child. He tells Regina that a grief shared is half a grief, and a joy shared is twice a joy. Regina asks Ben to share her joy, and then leads him over to the mirror.
2: Now, what do you see?
3: Lonely man, with swollen eyes.
2: Oh no, Ben. You see my joy. You see you, Ben. You're my joy.
3: I'm your joy?
2: Now can we be married? Right now? No. Wow.
3: Well, there are all manner of obstacles, Regina. Streams and streams of red tape, tons of legalities, all designed to prevent fervent people from getting married right now.
2: I'm not opposed to ritual, Ben. Oh.
3: And ours is such a beautiful ritual, Regina happens only once in a person's life. At least it should, and it usually does. It happens, and then it's over, almost quickly. And the veil is laid in cedar, and the memory is laid in your heart. And no one. Nothing can uproot that memory. No sudden, senseless tragedy. No willful murderer can rip it out and desecrate it. When we love and get married, we share our acts of love with God. When there are children, we share them with God. And when there are none, we share our grief with God. That's our ritual Regina, it's called life, and no evil, no inhuman mutation has ever been able to stop it, it goes on and on, just as the kind of life where you come from goes on and on, the way it was meant to go on and on. Ah!
1: Regina slowly backed away from Ben before falling over the edge of the balcony to the pavement below. Ben turns his head in despair still clenching Francesca's veil in his hands. Regina is motionless on the pavement, her face slowly fading back into its insect form. Ben remains on the balcony entrance. He drops the veil onto the ground and begins to sob. We then see Regina, back in B form, fly out of the garden as the control voice takes us out.
0: When the yearning to gain ascendancy takes the form of a soulless, loveless struggle, the conflict must end in unlovely defeat. For without love, drones can never be men, and men can only be drones.
1: Well, there you have it. Another straightforward episode that delivered the goods, in my opinion. Sure, there wasn't really a creature in this one, but it more than made up for it in tension and emotion thanks in large part to Marsha Hunt's performance. In the end, I feel like this was her story, and maybe that's because she was so good in it, but I cared more about her character than any of the others. With her dying in the end, it really makes you appreciate her performance when you rewatch the episode. So, zzz goes down in my book as another enjoyable episode, with the additional bonus of an impactful performance dear friend of the show, Lisa, was kind enough to share her thoughts on Zzz. She has the final word on tonight's episode.
6: Hey, Victor, it's Lisa D from LA, and I wanted to share some memories of seeing Z as a child with you, and I, I must admit, I, I, I laughed a bit when I saw the transition from bee to human uh, because she was fully clothed when <laughs> she became human. How did that happen? But let me tell you, back in the day, it, we didn't worry about stuff like that. I mean, especially as a kid, it was you, bee was in this garden, all of a sudden she became this woman. We were amazed, amazed, um, mostly because of what that meant for the story, more than we were that focused on how they got there. Um, and I love this particular actress and her ability to become this creature in her work, whether it was the way that she walked, when she skipped in the garden, before she, you know, had a taste of the flower in the in the pond, um, as if she were a bee skipping from flower to flower. Um, and the makeup and hair, but especially the hair... What a brilliant idea to have her hair fall in her face, so that she had to look either up through her hair, or you only saw one eye. It made her more mysterious and uh, a bit uh, intimidating and frightening. Um, really, really clever, clever idea. And of course, the '60s eye makeup—you know that—that that helped as well. Um, and the actor, Philip Abbott, who played Dr. Fields, I remember him from an episode of Twilight Zone. Uh, he played Billy Mummy's dad, I believe. Um, anyway, he he was great, too. He was so flattered by this young woman. And his wife um, saw all of that. And she, of course, saw through Joanna's uh, pretense. Um, and what I also loved about it was I loved the relationship that Professor Fields and Mrs. Fields had. It was it was so real in the sense of it wasn't overly sentimental, overly cloying, and, and, uh, but it was, there was a respect and a love and an appreciation. And the, and the script itself, the, the dialogue, uh, some of the speeches were, were, were so poignant. And uh, watching them relate to each other, watching uh, Joanna study them, um, her dialogue at times as well, of uh, being a queen bee, <laughs> talking about how her mother, you know, was jealous of her, of her beauty. And, uh, and when she was upstairs and Mrs. Fields asked if she wanted to come downstairs and help set the table to prepare for dinner, she was like, no, thank you. Cause I'm a queen. <laughs> I'm a queen bee. <laughs> wow. Just great. Great stuff that I didn't pick up as a child, the sarcasm of the dialogue and the way that it was delivered. Um, it was just so heartbreaking. I mean, I remember that. I remember, you know, there there are morality tales in a lot of the Outer Limits episodes that they weren't, they didn't hit you over the head, but if you could receive them, you received them. And Professor Field's speech at the end after he loses his wife, which I remember I was really sad about, and um, the way that he expressed what love is for human beings and, and what we hope to achieve uh, as as human beings when we relate with someone and appreciate someone and share joy and pain with someone. Um the scene at that same scene, just before it, when Joanna appears with that veil. Oh my gosh, that was scary. I remember it just was so stunning. It was just so stark and so um, just frightening um, with her taking something that did not belong to her that he cherished so much that belonged to he and his wife and the way that they shot it just... My goodness, I remember. I think I jumped a bit at that. So I must say that I, you know, I didn't think it was one of my favorite episodes. I know I enjoyed it. I remember as a kid, it affected me, and I got the pathos and the poignancy and the joy and the fun. Didn't get the sensuality, so <laughs> so that was new to discover that. But uh, it holds up very well. Um, I I am going to say now it's one of my favorites. It's especially now that I can appreciate what the actors did, what the, what the production values were, the direction, the writing. I can appreciate all of that now a bit more than I did as a child. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm so glad to be reintroduced to it because it's not one that I watch, I watch that often. So thank you. I will put that back on my list as one of my top Outer Limits episodes. And it's all because of you, Victor. <laughs> Look at you. Why you? okay victor um take care i'm looking forward to the next one uh can't wait to see what it's going to be and what's going to bring up for me thanks for letting me be a part of this and uh i'm sure we'll meet again
1: we now turn to david j scowls the outer limits companion to sharpen the image with some trivia Joseph Stefano had the following to say about the episode. I commissioned Zzz because of Joanna Frank. There was something about her face I thought would photograph beautifully. And so I had Mayor Dolinsky do the script. That business at the end with the wedding veil was mine. It worked even though there was nothing terribly original about the story. In the original script, Regina goes over the balcony, frantically flapping her arms, and is crushed to death when she hits the ground. Joanna Frank felt particularly abandoned on set. I didn't get much direction, she said, except for one. The scene where I embraced the tree. Brahms said, go with your feeling, and I went crazy overplaying it. Conrad Hall used a sparkle plenty filter to lend Joanna Frank an otherworldly appearance and devised a white spoke pattern seen in the iris of her eye. And finally, Joanna Frank laughed. And shared the following. Every time Zzz is shown on TV, I get at least four phone calls from friends. It's been, what, 21 years now? In the supermarket, people look at me funny. They come up to me and say, Aren't you the B-girl? One last thing before I go. On February 5th, 2020, actor Kevin Conway passed away at the age of 77, Among his credits are appearances in the 1993 film Gettysburg and the 1998 film Mercury Rising. But to myself and a generation of fans, he will be remembered as the control voice from the Outer Limits revival series. Given the impossible task of following Vic Perrin, Kevin Conway made it his own and brought an eeriness to the control voice that was unique to the revival series. I know this podcast is focused on the original series, but the revival series was my gateway to the original. And what drew me into that series was the unsettling control voice intro that, if you ask me, still stands the test of time. To this day, hearing Conway's voice, the John Van Tongren's theme, sends chills down my spine. So thank you, Kevin Conway, for opening the door for a new generation to witness the awe and mystery reaching from the deepest inner mind to the outer limits. So that's it for Zzz. I want to thank Lisa D. once again for her contribution to the show. If you'd like to share your thoughts or memories of the show, you can send an audio clip to Victor at TheOuterLimitsPodcast.com. You can find the show on Twitter at Outer Limits Pod and over on Instagram at Podcast. You can find recent episodes on most podcatcher apps, but the archive can now be found on Apple Podcasts as well as the mothership that is the Zone Podcast.com. So that'll do it for me. Join me next time when I cover episode 19 of season 1 titled The Invisibles. Until that time, I am Victor Camboa, and I now return Control to you.